What comes to mind when you hear the word commitment? I'm sure there's all kind of examples that we could throw out and all kind of examples that we could submit. Many people in the room would probably say commitment looks like being married for two plus decades, the richer and the poorer, the sickness and the health, the faithful and the unfaithful, the good, the bad, and definitely the ugly, uh, being married for uh, the duration of our lives and making it to the line of till death do us part. Anybody in the room been married for two decades or more? That's 20 years. Anybody? Come on, shout out to those been married over 20 years. How about that? Isn't that awesome? Congratulations, 20 years. That's a commitment. That is, that's a commitment. Maybe, maybe in your mind you might think that a commitment is staying out of job for 20 or 25 years and you know, sticking with it, staying with it. That's commitment. Maybe, maybe pursuit of certification, pursuit of training, pursuit of furthering your education, going back to school after X amount of time, that, that takes some commitment. When, when, I, when I hear commitment, I automatically think of a lot of things, but one of the things that's just very relevant to me is I think of the disciplines required for good health and nutrition because it is constantly a struggle for me. Now, I feel like I've climbed the biggest mountain of commitment with uh, changing and modifying my habits and upholding my disciplines to have better health, you know, to kind of pace myself for the long run. You know, for a while there, I was like, I'm on pace to check out around 50 if I don't make some major changes and I'm not even able to keep doing the things that I'm doing with this church and family and time and my body. And so I made some major changes and I feel like I'm kind of over the other side of that hill, but that doesn't mean the commitment's over with. In fact, there's a lot of things about the commitment of health alone and, or, or should I say nutrition alone that's very hard at my house, all right? Because I got four kids, four kids, 10, 11, 12, 14. If I don't give the 12 and the 14-year-old credit for rounding up, I'll be in trouble because their birthdays are right around the corner. So I'm going to go ahead and honor that. But that's not the biggest struggle. The biggest struggle is being married to Ashley, who eats Doritos and Sour Patch Kid casserole and drinks sugar water and just lives with an IV of Mountain Dew. As we go, not really, it's not that bad, but it's so hard living with someone who, while we're watching our show, can eat Doritos out of the bag. And as she's crunching on the chips, calories are being added to my waistline by the mere audible sound of the chip being digested and eaten. It's hard. It's, it's, it's hard being committed. It's hard being committed. It's hard doing those kind of things. And maybe you and I would attempt to define commitment on our own terms. Maybe we'd say commitment is something like sticking with something no matter what. Or commitment is giving your all to something or giving your all to someone. Or commitment is doing what we said we would do. Let's, let's attempt to better define commitment. Like online dictionaries, Webster, for example, says commitment is the state or quality of being dedicated to a cause. Commitment is a willingness to give your time and energy to something you believe in. Commitment is an engagement or obligation that restricts the freedom of action. Someone said, commitment, they said this, the hardest step in achieving anything 
is making a true commitment. Sounds like commitment is a crucial element of our own success because you will never conquer what you are not committed to. Tony Robbins said, if you wanna take the island, burn the boats. If you wanna take the island, burn the boats, implying and suggesting that there's gotta be abandonment of, an abandonment of your plan B and you've gotta adapt or adopt this all-in mentality if you wanna take the island, burn the boats because you'll never conquer anything you're not truly committed to. Somebody said years ago, and I heard it, commitment is doing what you said you would do long after the mood you set it in is gone or expired. And I believe there's different levels of commitment all over the board. I, I, I think there's a big difference in what you would give your life to versus what you would give your life for. There's a big difference in that. And I believe the highest degree of commitment is not when you are willing to give your life to something, but when you are willing to give your life for something. The ultimate commitment, church, I want you to hear me now. The ultimate commitment in a sense is when you believe something is worth dying for. It's worth dying for. I want you to say that with me. It's worth dying for. Say that with me. It's worth dying for. Is it worth dying for? What are you willing to die for? What a probing question. What an intrusive question in our personal bubble of comfort. What are you willing to die for? Let me ask you this. Is there anything in your life worth dying for? Is there anyone in your life worth dying for? Is there any cause in your life worth dying for? I'm reminded of a doctor who tells a story. He was operating on a little girl and she required O blood. Her blood type was O and nope, they didn't have any on hand and her twin brother had O blood. And so the doctor approached the young, the young boy and he, he told the son, he said, look, th this is a matter of life and death. This is a matter of life and death and you have O blood and she needs O blood. And the boy thought about it pondered the idea, looked at his sister, looked down at the ground, looked at his sister, went over and hugged his mom and daddy, kissed him on the cheek, told him he loved him, said goodbye. Went over, grabbed the doctor by the hand, said, okay, let's do this. Doctor didn't really think nothing about it. He's in the middle of giving his blood. He's real quiet and he's staring at the ground. And he looks up at the doctor and he says, when do I die? When do I die? And it hit the doctor. This boy thinks he is giving his life, all of his blood, in order to save his sister. He tells the story and says, thankfully, they're both doing just fine. The boy had a mentality, my sister is worth dying for. And if it's gonna take my blood in order for her to stay alive, I'm willing to die for my sister. That is commitment, a commitment worth dying for. So may I submit to you that the willingness to die for a cause would be the pinnacle of true commitment. Now, I'm not suggesting or implying that the only way to prove true commitment would be to die, but rather that you would be willing to die for this thing that you say you are committed to. And I cannot talk about commitment. I cannot talk about the willingness to die without someone coming to my mind. 
I'm reminded of Jesus and his demonstration of an ultimate commitment that was to the highest degree in order because Jesus had a cause worth dying for. May I say, and he died for that cause. He said in John 15, 13, greater love hath no man than this, that a man laid down his life for his friends. There is a difference in living your life for something and giving your life for something. Jesus didn't just live his life, he gave his life. And he knew that he had to lay his life down. He, he came to a point, 100% God, yet 100% man. But Jesus reached the point in his understanding as a human being, made of flesh and made in the likeness of flesh, he came to the understanding that he was sent on a mission from the Father as the Son with a mission to die for the world. He was born to die. Stay with me, I promise you, I'm going somewhere. He knew that he had to die. That's why he told his parents at the temple at the age of 12, I must be about my father's business. And he came to the understanding and the realization that he must lay his life down. And Jesus demonstrated commitment. That's why Paul said in Philippians 2.8, and being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. See, in the mind of Christ, he had this mentality of commitment that said, I have to die. I must die. He told his disciples, he said, I must suffer. I must be killed. I must be raised again. And you remember Peter grabbed him and rebuked him and said, be it far from thee, Lord. And then he rebuked Peter and he said, get behind me, Satan. You don't know my mission. You don't know my assignment. I must die. He told the Jews, I will destroy the temple talking of his body and I will raise it again in three days. I've got to get to the cross. Not my will, but thine be done. Jesus had a mentality of commitment that said, I have to die. I will be the sacrifice. I cannot break under the pressures of Gethsemane. I can't lose it when Judas betrays me. I can't walk away from the mockery and the ridicule. I can't give up at the whipping post. I've got to make it to the cross because I'm here to destroy the works of the devil. Isaiah said he was led as a sheep to the slaughter. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him, beaten, cursed, and spit upon. He was stripped naked. Go ahead, tie me to the wood and drive the nails in my hands. I will be the lamb that takes away the sin of the world. Then he gave up the ghost, hung his head, and died. He died, he died, he died. Somebody say he died. He died. 
until the sun refused to shine. He died until the earth got nervous and shook in fear. He died until graves opened up all over Jerusalem. He died until the veil of the temple was torn from top to bottom. He died until law broke loose and turned to grace. He died until curses started turning into blessings. He died until the soldier said, surely this man is the son of God. He died till the thief cried, Lord, remember me. He died until the father turned and looked our way. He died and became sin for us. He died and finished the job. I said he died, he died, he died, and he died for you, and he died for me. Somebody help me praise him. If you know he died for us. When he was on the cross, he had me on his mind. He was committed and he thought you were worth dying for. He thought you were worth dying for. He was committed. He was committed to something worth dying for. Paul said in Romans chapter five, when we were yet without strength, <laughs> in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God, but God demonstrated, God proved, God commendeth his love toward us. Not while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled. We shall be saved by his life. Jesus thought we were worth dying for. He didn't just give his life to us. He gave his life for us. Jesus died for sinners like us. He died for sinners like us. Uh, tell somebody next to you, it was for me. 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 There's an emphasis, ladies and gentlemen, on the preposition for. Just a simple little three-letter word, for, in Romans chapter 5 that appears four times. And the emphasis is on the word for because the word for means in exchange of, in the place of, in the stead of, to be substituted on behalf of. You could say God initiated a trade. God initiated the greatest trade ever made. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Titus 2.14, look at this, who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity and purify unto himself a peculiar people zealous of good works. 1 Peter 3.18, for Christ also hath once suffered for sins, the just for the unjust. What a deal. What a deal. A deal that man cannot comprehend. A deal that angels 
do not understand a deal that demons cannot thwart, a deal that the devil could not stop, a deal that God will never reverse, and a deal that we must not reject. What a deal! What a deal! The good for the bad, the holy for the unholy, the innocent for the guilty, the love for the hated, the right for the wrong, the beautiful for the ugly, the perfect for the flawed, the best for the worst, the heavenly for the earthly, the beloved for the rejected, a savior for sinners. What a deal. What a deal. And in this trade, all we had to offer was ourself. Sin and all. And he took it. OMG, he took it. He took it. And when I say we, all we had to offer was ourself, sin and all. When I say the word sin, you think of the equivalent of the things I'm doing that I'm not supposed to do. And it's so much greater than that. In fact, when you see the word sin, and not plural, sins. A lot of times the word sin is, is pointing to sin nature, the very nature of the human being, the very nature of the carnal man, the very nature of what we are naturally. We're just sinners by nature. It's just our nature to make the wrong choice. It's our nature to be stupid. It's our nature to be jealous. It's our nature to be prideful. It's our nature to be perverted. It's our nature to lie. It's our nature to be uh, fearful and unbelieving. It's our nature. And he took us, sin, nature, and all. And on this cross, God performed the greatest trade ever made. And he traded the unrighteousness of our sin with the righteousness of his son. He traded the insufficiency of our sin with the sufficiency of his son. He took the unholiness of our sin and traded it with the holiness of his son. See, when you, when you make a trade, in a trade, both recipients are looking at the trade as to what they can gain personally. So the goal in any kind of trade is to make a fair trade. Somebody say amen. But some trades just aren't right. Some trades are not fair. I was at the house working one day and I was coming down the hallway. This was a few years ago, right after we got our new home. I was coming down the hallway and the boys usually play with the door wide open, but I noticed the door was cracked. And so automatically I have to go investigate and see what is going on inside of this room on the other side of the door. So as I go down the hallway, I creep real quietly I pull the door open like that and look, and the boys are in the middle of making a trade. And I'm not talking about like shrewd businessmen, you know, with a box of stogies and cigar clippers and you know, a little Ninja Turtle cup full of brandy, you know, and there's just, I'm having to wave through the smoke to find out what's happening in there. And I'm not talking about like that. We weren't playing a game of poker or anything, you know. I open the door and Mason on one side, Landon on the other. And Mason's got a $20 bill. And Landon's got a cookie. Wait, it was the other way around, wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, Mason had the cookie. The older brother tempting the ignorance of the younger. And Landon had a 20. And I said, what are y'all doing? 
Landon thought he was getting a deal. He was mad at me for interrupting his exchange and Mason knew what was happening. He was like, oh, oh. I said, y'all don't need to be doing business. Give me that cookie and that $20 bill. Y'all don't, you got no business doing that. Come to the house. Some trades don't make any sense. Some trades are just not fair. Can we get a little personal this morning? Let me get personal. Would you trade the life of your child to save the life of one of mine? You lose yours, I keep mine. Can we go a step further? Would you trade the life of one of your children for Lawrence Bittaker? Been on death row 37 years in California for brutally murdering five young women. Nobody in this room would even consider or contemplate the idea of trading the life of their child for the likes and the life of a murderer that the world and state says is deemed worthy of nothing but death. And this trade that God made with sinners like us doesn't appear to be very balanced. It doesn't look very fair, yet God made the trade anyway. Is this hitting you this morning? Is this getting you? He made the trade anyway because he was committed to us. I want you to get this bottom line and I want you to write this down. I want you to put it in your head. God thought you were worth dying for, so he offered his son. He thought you were worth dying for, so he offered his son. He initiated the deal with you and me by putting his son on the table. God went all in and he put his son on the table. And when he put his son in, when he put his son on the table, he offered some things to us that I cannot see how we would refuse. Paul said in Romans 5 that when God put his son on the table, God offered us proof. He did, he offered us proof, and that proof is found in his love. The Bible said God commendeth his love toward us. That means God made the first move in the trade. That means God made the first step and God came your way when you never even thought about coming his. That means God was looking at you when you weren't even looking at him. That means God was thinking of you when you weren't even thinking of him. That means God cared about you when you didn't even care about him. Can I go a step further? That means God loved you when you never had it in you to love him. He came to you when you never could come to him. Religion couldn't build a bridge. Morals couldn't build, build a bridge. Baptism couldn't build a bridge. Yet God laid down a cross like a bridge between the dark damnable abyss of your sin and shame and he made a way to come to you. He sent his son and demonstrated his love toward us. And the Bible says this, he demonstrated and proved that love while we were ungodly and while we were sinners. He uses two words to characterize the state we were in, ungodly. It means unable to be like God. God is love, John says. God is love. So if you're ungodly, you don't have the capacity or the ability to love God, which means God loves something that couldn't love him back. God loves something that didn't love him back. And he demonstrated that love while you were in that state and I was in that state. And then he goes a little step further and he reveals to the depths of his love and he tells us this, that we were sinners. Everybody say sinners. 
Sinners. The Greek means a person devoted to sin. A sinner is a person devoted to sin. Sin means to miss the mark. Listen to this now. Sin means to miss the mark, which means there is a mark, a line of God's holiness, of God's standard, of God's perfection. Sin happens two ways. When we miss the mark, sometimes we trespass God's law and we just go too far. Sometimes we don't have what it takes in our own ability and we come short and we miss the mark. It's impossible to make the mark of God's holiness, God's standards, God's convictions, God's perfection. And we are sinners, which means you're devoted to missing the mark. I just have it in me. My nature is devoted to never being able to uphold God's standards. Sometimes I just go too far. I know what's wrong, but I just go too far. I know where the line is, but I put myself to the challenge. I go too far. I do it ignorantly. I do it presumptuously, which means it's not ignorantly. I knew it was wrong, but I just did it anyway. I don't care. I've been saved 18, 19 years, but it's still in me. I still want to do stuff I know I'm not supposed to do, and I'm at war with myself, but I just find myself devoted to sinning. And then there's things in me, even when I'm at my very best, and I put on my A game, and I get prayed up, and I get in my Bible, I still don't have the ability in and of myself to make that mark and keep that mark. I always seem to fall short because I'm an ungodly sinner. I'm devoted. My nature is devoted to going too far, to coming short. I'm devoted to sinning. Sinning that drove nails in his hands. Sinning that put a crown of thorns on his brow. Sinning that made his blood run red down the cross. Sin that hurt God. Sin that haunted God. Sin committed against God. Not just against me. Not just against others. Sin against God. Yet he loved me when I went too far. He loved me when I fell short. He didn't wait till I got it right to love me. He didn't wait till I made the mark and showed him I could do it. He did it when I fell down. He did it when I went too far. He said, I love you at your worst. I'm not waiting for your best. I'll send my best and I'll die for your worst. I love you. I'm going to prove to you. I'm going to prove to you I love you, and I'm going to love you at your depths. My God, somebody help me give him praise if you're glad God proved his love. When he offered his son, when he offered his son, he offered us proof. When he offered his son, he offered us protection. He offered us protection because Paul then says that we were justified by his blood. We were, ju- we were justified. We were justified. Like we, we, we got a new legal standing with God, which means all records, all testimonies, all accusations, all charges, all evidence of our wrongdoing and our fallen state against God. God justified, which means he erased, exonerated, removed any evidence of us as a sinner. And he put us in a legal standing of rightness with God through the blood of his son. Basically, the moment you put your faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, God put you in a blood covenant, a blood contract with himself 
through the blood of his son. And may I report to you the blood that his son, his son shed, it was lasting blood. It was lasting blood. It's blood that will endure through your darkest hours, your deepest, darkest secrets. It's blood that runs deeper than the stain of any sin in your past, your present, or your future. It's a liberating blood. It's blood that makes chains fall. It's blood that makes demons run away. It's blood that turns a light on in the middle of your darkness. It's blood that severs the cords and the bands of addiction. It's blood that overcomes generational cycles, habits, and sin. It's blood that can heal your body. It's blood that can heal your mind. It's blood that can heal your spirit. I wish I had some blood-covered people in the room that could help me just give God a little bit of praise at 9 a.m. If you ever got in a blood contract with a bloody cross and a bloody covenant and one drop of his blood was more than enough to justify the deadest sinner, somebody help me praise him if you're glad and thankful for his blood. Protected. God's got it covered. He's got it covered. He's got you covered. And that's why he says we're saved from his wrath. Oh, the wrath of God is like a fairy tale out of a book. We don't think it's real. We think it's non-existent. It's not practical. It's not practical. It's all, it's all, it's all illustrational. It's all analogical. It's all theoretical. God's never going to settle the score. God's never going to even, uh, even things up. God, God's never going to get vengeance. God's never going to repay. God's never going to recompense. Let me say something. God is going to push the, he's going to unpause the pause button the moment he raptures his church out of here. The, the moment Christ, and he's not coming to the planet, he's going to step right into the atmosphere. On a cloud, the trumpet's gonna sound in a moment in the twinkling of an eye, we're gonna be out of here. We're gonna exit this world. We're gonna, we're gonna go. We're not taking nothing with us. We're going butt naked. Brand new body, changed in a moment. The dead in Christ rise first. We which are alive and remain go right thereafter. We meet Christ in the clouds and God hits the pause button, unpauses 2,000 years of prophetic program he initiated with Israel. And he's gonna go and deal with the nation of Israel as a people for seven years. Three and a half years at the midpoint, the Antichrist is going to sit on the throne in the temple in Jerusalem and declare himself to be God. This world's gonna go to hell in a handbasket. No world war we've ever had will scrape the surface of what's happening down here. Demons bigger than Volkswagens running around, people fleeing to the mountains and the hills and caves and caverns. I'm talking about if you don't take the seal, if you don't take the mark, if you don't take whatever that 666 is, if you don't take it, my God, there is a warrant on your head. There's a price tag on your life. Can you imagine the wrath unfolding? And that's the tip of the iceberg. And when I lay down tonight, I'm not worried whether Elon Musk is going to microchip everybody in the forehead and the hand setting us up for this 
neurological pathway to get connected to technology and it's our robot, zombie apocalypse, all I'm not, I'm not worried. I don't care. Doesn't matter what happens in Israel. It don't, it don't matter what they unveil in Russia. I'm just, I'm, when I go to bed tonight, I'm just not scared. I'm not worried. I'm not worried. And I know there's a day where the great and small, the dead and alive will stand before God and he will judge them according to their sin. And there's another crowd he judges according to their works. And I know I'm in the crowd that gets judged for my works and not my sin because my sin already got dealt with. What God thought about my sin already got dealt with. What God was gonna do about my sin already got dealt with. So every time I've done something in this fleshly temple body that's gotta die. See, sin dies with the body it was committed with. My soul is saved, my spirit is saved. But I've done some things in this body that I don't wanna talk about with y'all, but God knows about them. But when this body dies, God lets everything the body did die with it if I'm in Christ. Because when my blood is gone, his blood is still applied and it covers everything I did in this temple. So when I stand in front of God, he ain't going to bring up my past. He ain't going to bring up today and he ain't going to bring up tomorrow. He's going to look at me and say, I see my son when I look at you because I see his blood over your life. Protected. When I, when I said yes to this deal, I didn't just get, I didn't just get his, what was the first one? Oh, y'all ain't listening? Proof. I asked because I forgot. He offered me his proof. He offered me his protection. But then he offered me his peace. Everybody say peace. I got God's peace. I got God's peace. Now, there's a difference having peace in God and peace with God. Because you can't have peace in God until you have peace with God. I can't tell you how many unbiblical things have been uttered to me with people in their last stages of life. And they say, I just need to make peace with God. I'm like, well, God already made peace. He already made peace with man. You can't do nothing in this hospital bed to make peace with God except put your faith in what he already did through the peace treaty on the cross. We have the wrong idea about making peace with God. And when God offered you this deal, this trade, this exchange with his son, he offered you peace. That's why Paul said when we were enemies. Nobody likes to use that word, but it's there. We were enemies. While we were enemies, God reconciled us by the death of his son. God established a peace treaty on a wooden cross on a hillside called Calvary with the human race through the death of his son. Listen to this, David Platt in his book, Radical, taking back your faith from the American dream. He says this, the modern day gospel says God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Therefore, follow these steps and you can be saved. Meanwhile, the biblical gospel says you are an enemy of God, dead in your sin. And in your present state of rebellion, you are not even able to see that you need life, much less to cause yourself to come to life. Therefore, you are radically dependent on God to do something in your life that you could never do. Jesus on the cross did something for your soul that you'll never be able to do in this lifetime. You were an enemy of God separated by the walls of your sin. And I want you to get this. When his son died in that body, God broke down the walls and made a way for you to be at peace with God. He made a way for him to be at peace with you. He took you in your state of rejection and he, through his son, made you acceptable. He made you adoptable. 
He made it possible for you and him to be on speaking terms because you weren't. You were an enemy of the cross. Paul said you were an alien of the commonwealth of Israel. He said you were a stranger when it came to the covenant, the promises, and the testament of God. So God reconciled you to himself by offering his son. This is never a matter of God's got to get reconciled to us. No, God has to reconcile us to him. And the cross was God making a way for us to be at peace with God. We don't make our peace with God, for God already made peace with us. And if we believe and we accept him by faith in what he's done to make peace, God reconciles. He establishes a relationship with us that is the quality of eternal life, and he guarantees us a personal relationship with him through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, if you're thankful of that this morning, somebody help me give him praise if you're glad that God offered his son. The team's coming to help me close, and I want you to think of this, and I'm gonna close quickly. When God put his son on the table, he put everything on the table for you. When God put his son on the table, 2,000 years ago, the table was empty. You at one end, and God at the other. And God put everything, all the chips in his hand, on the table when he put his son on the cross. God thought you were worth dying for. So he offered his son. The question is, will you offer yourself? Will you offer yourself? He put everything on the table. My question, and I can't help but be curious, it's my nature, I can't help but be curious. He put everything on the table. Why is it there's nothing on the table in front of you? Why is it you've put nothing on the table? I mean, look, $20 for a cookie, it's a bad deal. It's a poor exchange. It's a bad business. But the proof that he loves you, everlasting protection and being at peace with God, and you don't want to put anything on the table? Why is that? Why is there nothing on the table? Is it, is it because you, you feel too distant? You feel so far away, like unreachable, unlovable, unsavable, undeliverable, unredeemable? I just, I, I feel so far away. It's just this pattern that I've established in my life and I just, I just feel like I am too low or too far gone for God to ever reach me. Tell me what this service is. Tell me what this sermon is. Is this sermon not the fingertips of God reaching in front of your face saying, come to me? Distant, far away, prodigal son or daughter. Is this not God saying to you, I'm here and I'm reaching out for you? God didn't just send his son 2,000 years ago. He sent somebody by you. He put somebody in your life that invited you to their church and then you came and you came today and I'm preaching this sermon and the Holy Spirit is prompting, poking, prodding, persuading, whispering in your ear, I came to this service for you. He's here right now. He's here right now. You can't see him. You can't feel him. You can't.
only hear him, but he's here in spirit. And this is him saying, I love you, and this is me reaching you, and you're never too distant. I've proved my love when I sent my son. Why is there nothing on the table in front of you? Is it because you feel too dirty? Like you, you're too defiled? Like God, God, couldn't, God couldn't work with a contaminated mess like me. Pastor, dude, you don't know my secrets. What if your secrets are my secrets? You don't know my vices. What if your vices are my vices? What if, what if the chains that enslave you are the chains some of these people on this stage are trying to break? Right now, right now. What if, not, what if not everything fell off the day you got saved? Some stuff stuck to you. Some stuff stayed with you. And it's been a struggle ever since your Christianity originated. I wish I could say everything just fell right off, just like that. Perfection was achieved 24 seconds after salvation was received. That's not how that happens. That's not how it happens. No, no. Let me tell you something. I am no more fit right now to be on the table than I was when I was ungodly and a sinner. But me being fit to be on the table never had anything to do with me. Because the moment blood hits sin, all God sees is red. The moment you get washed, you're washed. The moment you're justified, you're justified. Well, I don't feel that way. Guess what? It's not about how you feel. It's never going to be about how you feel. It's not even about how you look. See, my God, I'm, I'm protected. I'm protected. So even, even when I'm dirty, my protection is not a license to get dirty. That's right. No, in fact, because I'm protected, I don't want to get dirty. Grace isn't my permission slip to go do whatever the heck I want to do in this body. Grace is I'm supposed to be in hell and I'm not. Grace is I'm forgiven and I shouldn't be. Grace is I get to live clean. I get to be pure. I get to be holy. I get to experience God. And I don't have to do those things. I don't want to do those things. But I'm going to forever wrestle with this nature, this flesh, this sinful, carnivorous, carnal mentality that's going to drag me right over that line and I'm going to get dirty. What then? Is God going to wash his hands of my filth? Is God going to say, I can't work with you anymore? You know, I'm protected when I'm sober. And I'm protected when I'm drunk. I'm protected when I'm balanced. And I'm protected when I'm high. I'm protected when I'm faithful and I'm protected when I'm unfaithful. I'm protected when I'm wise and I'm protected when I'm unwise. I'm protected when I'm at my best and I'm protected when I'm at my worst. None of it is a license to go be unwise, to get drunk, to get high, to be stupid, to be unfaithful. But I do have this guarantee that if my flesh drags me over that line, or my character is not enough to get me to the line, I've got a guarantee that I'm never too dirty. Why is there nothing on the table? Is it because you feel too disgraced? Sometimes, the, sometimes the abused abuse. The abused, the victim abuses self. The mentality is warped, so the abused 
abuse, you abuse yourself. What happens to you starts happening through you. And it happens to you because you do it to yourself. And the hearts, and the wounds, and the hurts. Right now in this room, people with the mentality, I'm too disgraced. I've been mishandled by too many people. Too many people have misappropriated their trust with me. They have broken my heart. They have broken my, my, my trust. They have, they have broken my confidence. They have broken my esteem. And I've just been, I've been mishandled. And I'm just, dis, I'm disgraced. I've been abandoned. I've been rejected. And God says, I'm going to make peace with you. When the world against you, with you against you, I want to be for you. And I gave my son as a demonstration that I want peace with you so you can have peace with me. And one wound at a time will heal those wounds. One hurt at a time will fix those hurts. One, one place of pain at a time, we will bring comfort, we'll bring consolation, we'll bring renewal, we'll bring life again because I gave a son so that you may have peace with me through his life. Some people in this room can testify. I realized I wasn't too distant. I realized I wasn't too dirty. I realized I wasn't too disgraced. I realized that I could put something on the table and God would accept it. There's people in this room right now that can testify. You can't erase that smile on some of the faces in this room. You can't keep some of these praisers and worshipers quiet because it hit us one day. God offered everything to me when he put his son on the table and I said yes to it. I accepted the greatest trade ever made. I put me on the table. Do I have anybody in the room that finally got to the point where you said I'm on the table. I'll say yes to it. I'll put me in. Sin and all. Dirt and all. Damage and all. I'll put me on the table and I'll say yes to the greatest trade ever.